mentioned earlier, and hopefully at our Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley and venue and chapel, it was mentioned as well. We start a new series today. Uh, what we didn't say is that it's a series essentially on three verses in the Bible. Uh, we're going to spend nine weeks, over two months, on three verses in the Bible. But I promise you guys that uh, if you engage this series, if you dial into this series with your heart and mind, uh, it, it has the chance to truly change your life. God has a chance to truly change your life. In fact, as I've been in study for this series since last summer, when I feel the Lord gave me the uh, idea to do this series out of His Word, uh, my prayer uh, all week has been this. God, may you give each of us a new level of commitment and a new level of devotion to you. Uh, because kind of like if you can see your spiritual life as a upward trek where you hit plateaus and then do another upward trek and then hit a plateau, it's time for some of us here today uh, to, to go another trek upward and then uh, reach the next plateau. It's time to mature a little bit in our walk with the Lord. And uh, I think this series could be watershed for some of us. You'll see why I say that as we go along today. And so uh, no more introduction. Let's bow and pray, and then we're going to dive right into God's Word. Father, um, I pray that as we begin a fresh look at a very relevant portion of your Scripture, just a few verses, that God, you might uh, indeed enter into our lives in a fresh way, in a powerful way, and do, Lord, maybe a work that you've wanted to do in many, if not some of us, for a long time. I pray, God, that we uh, truly might start to grow more in our faith, our love, our devotion, our understanding uh, for you, and that you would draw us even closer to you over the next couple of months. That's my prayer. Start that today, Lord, I pray, in Christ's name, and we say together, amen. So imagine that you could play the game of Jenga and never have it fall. Let me say that again. Imagine that you could play the game of Jenga and never have it fall. Now, some of you know what I mean by that. Others of you have no idea what Jenga is, so let me explain. we got a wonderful prop here for you. Uh, Jenga was a game invented back in the late 70s, early 1980s by a gal who was a British national who had grown up in South Africa and most likely learned this game there. And when she got back to Britain, uh, she developed this game called Jenga. And what it does is it takes 54 wooden blocks just like this. This is a supersized version of it. It's much smaller if you buy a set. But they take 54 blocks like this, and they put them in rows of three going one way, and then rows of three going the other way, and then rows of three going one way, other way. And they build a tower to begin with. This is how you start the game, about 18 stories high. And the, the point of the game is simple. It takes two or more players, and that is to uh, somehow wiggle one of the blocks free, and it's easier to do it on the real game, uh, wiggle a block free, pull it out without having the structure topple over, and put it on the top. That's the game of Jenga. And you can only use one hand to do it, and you have 10 seconds in between turns, and the person that eventually makes the whole game fall, or any of the pieces fall, loses. It's Jenga. And the idea is to build as big a tower as you can to see how high it can get as you pull blocks out and it makes it weaker but stronger and put them on top, and that's Jenga. And it's caught on. 50 million Jenga sets have been sold worldwide in the last few years. 
And obviously the idea is to build the tallest structure you can. The world record for the tallest Jenga was set back in the 1980s by one of the original distributors in the United States and Canada, Robert Grebler, who claims to have created a Jenga tower 40 and two-thirds levels high. That's twice the height of the original 18 stories. Uh, that's the record so far today. So now that you understand the game, I want to throw before you one last time. Imagine you could play the game of Jenga and never have it fall. You see, the real game of Jenga is inevitably going to fall, right? You guys got that. I mean, it's going to eventually topple over, but imagine with me that you could build a beautiful, towering, twice or maybe three times taller than the original thing here, Story Jenga, and have it be solid and beautiful and never fall. You see, when I shared with the Creative Arts team about this series that we're starting here today, they immediately thought of Jenga. Based on the series theme of the passage that we're going to read very shortly, they thought of this idea of seeing our relationship with God as building kind of a beautiful storied tower one building block at a time. You'll see what we mean by that here in a minute. They thought of Jenga and building the beautiful towering Jenga. The only difference being, however, uh, that unlike the real game where it's inevitably going to fall, the Bible says, and I pointed this out to them, <laughs> that once we build our spiritual Jenga, God says it's never going to fall. And that's why I asked you to imagine it, because that's the big difference. So if you can simply picture Jenga, and now you can, tall and beautiful, and each block representing a, a spiritual action that you're taking in your life, you'll see what we mean by that in a minute, then you're now ready to understand the passage that we're going to look at today. If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. I mentioned earlier we're going to park in front of mainly three verses in this series out of 2 Peter chapter 1. But for our purposes this morning, this is all a setup message today, uh, I want us to look at the verses that come before our main passage and then a few verses that come after it. So we're going to read verses 1 through 11. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, fear not, it's in your outline or the blank page I put in your bulletin. If you're still digging your heels in, then look up here on the monitor with me, and I'm going to read the passage before us. I want us all to get this in front of us. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. See if you can figure out in this what the building blocks of this spiritual Jenga are. Are you ready for this? Here we go. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge 
and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I got to tell you guys, this is going to be a great series. Hopefully you've already caught it. We're going to do a deep dive into these eight qualities contained in verses 5 through 7 that we've listed here on our little Jenga thing. Virtue, self-control, godliness, love, and then over here, faith, knowledge, steadfastness, brotherly affection. These are the building blocks, Peter tells us, of our faith. And we're going to spend a week on each one inviting them into our lives, befriending them, and building a strong, vital, and mature faith, one building block at a time. And we begin next week with the very first one, faith. But before we even get to that, we need to do a little bit of pre-work first. We need to establish precisely what these eight qualities are about and the nature of them and even how God wants us to approach them and utilize them in our lives. For you sports fans, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a little time in the locker room today before we head out to the playing field. We're going to go to the whiteboard today or the chalkboard and we're going to map out what we need to do on the field so that when we hit the field next week, we know exactly what we are to do. And so here is the main point this morning. Here is our primary game strategy that 2 Peter 1 hammers home to us in those verses I just read. And it's simply this, that as followers of Jesus Christ, there are certain things that you and I can do. Now get this to cooperate with God in our personal and spiritual growth. Man, I'm telling you, a lot of Christians don't get this because you've been sold a faulty bill of goods. So let me repeat this. As followers of Christ, which I hope most of us are, there are certain things, like eight things listed here, that we can do, and here's the key, to cooperate with God in what the Bible calls our sanctification. Now, to fully and richly understand what I'm laying out here, I want us to notice once again how this passage before us begins in verses 3 and 4 when Peter makes clear that as followers of Jesus, we've already, just by being followers of Jesus, been given two corollary things. Did you catch it? Verse 3 says that because you're breathing here today, and a follower of Christ, you have in you divine power. And then in verse 4, this is wild, there's even an aspect of you that now has divine nature in you. I'm not saying that, the Bible is. Uh, and it's in you because you're in Christ. So notice with me how the passage begins in verse 3. It says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 
That phrase divine power is the phrase theos dunamis. Theos is the Greek word for God. And dunamis, where we get our English word dynamite from, simply means power. So that little phrase theos dunamis means the power of God. God's power is at work in the one who has believed in Jesus. For our purposes right in this moment, let's not confuse this. God's power, not our power. Give me a head nod, you all understand that. God's power is operative in you as a believer in Jesus Christ. And notice that it is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I looked up that phrase, all things, in the Greek this week, and you know what it literally means? Say it with me. All things. It means what it says. So there's no weaseling out of this. It's not like, well, God sometimes will empower me and sometimes not. No, he's saying, you are empowered from day one, from believing in me for all things that come your way in life. Then, as if that's not enough, in verse 4, Peter says almost the same thing, but a little bit differently when he says, by which... God has granted to us his very precious or his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature. And I got to tell you, that's wild. The Bible usually doesn't talk this way, using a phrase like divine nature as referring to us. Again, it's the Greek phrase theos physis, where we get the English word physics from, physis. And physis means the nature or substance of things. So what it's simply saying here is that, there's, is that when we got saved, when we believed in Jesus, God imparted just a bit of his divine nature. It doesn't make us God, but a, a part of his attributes, a part of his substance. Jesus would say it this way, me and the Father are going to come and live in you. The Holy Spirit is now going to live in you. And I think there's a corollary there. Because that's true, there's an aspect of God's divine nature now empowering us, according to verse 3, in our Christian life. And notice it says that we are partakers of this divine nature. That's the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship. So we have fellowship with God because he lives inside of us and even shares his power and a bit of his nature with us. So here's what I simply need you to see because we're going to move on from this in about 10 seconds. This is the starting point for the Christian. This isn't the goal. This isn't where we're trying to get to. You'll see where we're trying to get to in a minute here. This is where God starts you off. You're still in the locker room. You're still in the starting blocks. And he says, I have empowered you. I've given you a part of my nature for everything that's going to come your way in life. It's like God saying, I've primed you to win way before the game even starts. I put my power in you, even an aspect of my nature, and it's in your very soul from the moment of conversion. The Jenga blocks are all set up, <laughs> and God says you're ready to play the game. Now, with that understanding... Notice with me what God does next, because this is mind-blowing. After cluing us in to his divine power and nature, then he switches gears here in this passage very fast and says this. He says, now based on this, make every effort, fascinating phraseology, make every effort to add to your faith virtue and virtue, and it goes on to list all the, the eight building blocks there, but it says make every effort to do that. Then in verse 10, 
in looking back on these eight qualities, it says, be the more diligent, you be more diligent to make your calling and election sure by adding these eight things to your life. And then it uses even language like this, make sure that you supplement to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control and so on. And make sure that those things are increasing in your life. Now, and I gotta tell you folks, these are very interesting words used here. Very different from the words used in verses 3 and 4, God says, make every effort, be the more diligent. In the original Greek that Peter was first written in, that word effort in verse 5 and that word diligent in verse 10, now watch this, is the same word in the original Greek. Just translated differently in English. To translators do that. But it's the Greek word spaude or spaudazo. One's a noun, one's a verb. And get this, I researched it this week, that word literally means, now you're going to like this, to do your best, to try as hard as possible. They are used 23 times in the New Testament, and I looked up every occurrence, and every occurrence, now isn't this interesting, has to do with human effort as opposed to divine effort. So God has already said his divine power is working in us, and now he says, exert all your human effort to be more diligent and to apply these eight things to your life. Some of you say, whoa, is that really what it's saying? It is. I mean, in 1 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 21, this word spaude or spaudazo is used, and Paul says to Timothy, make every effort to come to me. Then in Galatians 2.10, the Jerusalem elders tell Paul, make every effort to remember the poor. Then in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself to God. And then in 2 Peter 3.14, it tells all of us, be diligent to be found in Christ. So, so every time it's used, it's a command or encouragement to you or I to get off our duffs and start doing something. To exert just a little bit of human effort to make something happen. Again, because God already empowers us. And adding even more texture to this and clarity, we're then told to supplement this power that we have from God with adding these eight things to our life and to make sure that they are increasing in our lives. Making every effort and being the more diligent while you do. Now, with that understanding, let's add all this up. As we saw in verses 3 and 4, you got God's power and His divine nature in us that's god's part as believers in jesus god's done that for us and that's the starting point but then as we saw god switches gears real fast here and tells us that in light of this to make every effort and to be more diligent supplementing and increasing as we engage in these eight actions that include everything from faith to virtue to knowledge to self-control to steadfastness to godliness to brotherly affection to the pinnacle of it all love and, and if you're hearing me rightly, and I'm trying to be very clear here, I hope right now you're feeling a little bit of complementary tension as we lay this out. A tension between God's power that's at work within us and yet his obvious call for you and I to make an effort. And if you're feeling that complementary tension right now, that's good because this is what theologians for years, based on their understanding of the Bible, have called cooperative sanctification. Fancy language that simply means that when it comes to our growth in Christ, there's a true cooperation with God. One that involves His power, 
but then also involves our efforts as we still depend upon him. And though some of you from a more Calvinist or Reformed camp get a little bit uneasy when I talk like this because you rightly want to protect God's sovereignty and his providence in all things as I do as well, what you need to know, and there's no mistaking this, gang, is that the vast majority of Reformed scholars see it precisely the way that we're talking about it today. And they don't see what we're talking about today as taking away an iota from God's election decrees or his providence. J.I. Packer is probably one of the strongest Reformed theologians still alive today, and in his little book called Concise Theology, he says this. He says, sanctification, our growth in Christ, is in one sense synergistic. It is an ongoing cooperative process in which regenerate persons alive to God and freed from sin's dominion are required to exert themselves in sustained obedience. God's method of sanctification is neither activism, self-reliant activity, nor apathy, self-reliant or God-reliant passivity, but God-dependent effort. That's Packer. And then if you're still not convinced, let's look at our friend Wayne Grudem in chapter 38 of Systematic Theology. Grudem says, the role that we play in sanctification is both a passive one in which we depend on God to sanctify us and an active one in which we strive to obey God and take steps that will increase our sanctification. And then one final quote. This is from Bruce Demarest. He's a longtime professor of theology at Denver Seminary. And Bruce says, Sanctification is a cooperative venture. The Spirit blesses believers with sanctifying grace, but the latter, meaning believers, must faithfully cooperate therewith. Faith alone justifies, but faith joined with our concerted efforts sanctifies. And I think you're starting to get the point. There's a cooperation needed here for you and I to grow in Christ. And some of us have missed that. Some of us have been waiting around for God to do something, and God's turning the tables on you. He's saying, I'm not the one waiting. You're the one who needs to get moving in your life. And these eight qualities that we're going to look at in this series will get you moving. Let me show you how silly some Christians might look at times, even me at times, because I'll, I'll own this with you. I want you to imagine a fictitious scenario where God appears to you and he says to you, you know what, I'm, I'm going to show my power and glory in your life, and tomorrow I'm going to have you enter a world-class running race, even though you're 53 and chubby, and I'm going to have you enter a world-class running race, and, and, and I'm going to empower you in such a way that you're going to win that race. And I want you to tell NBC and CBS and ABC and all your friends to be there and watch it because I'm going to display my power in you and you're going to be empowered to beat Carl Lewis and anyone, well, he's probably slow now, but anybody else that, that, that's the fast person in the world today. And so you get all jazzed up and you get the media there and the press and you get all your friends and there's, say, 10 runners in a row here and you're going to have a race around the track and so you get in the starting blocks and you say, I can't wait to see what God's going to do and, and all of a sudden the gun goes off. And everybody starts running. And you're left standing there in the blocks. And all of a sudden you look up to God and say, what gift, God? You said you were going to empower me. You said I was going to win this, win this race. And I'm still standing here. What do you think God would say to you? 
He'd say, get running, dummy. Uh, of course I said I'm going to empower you. As you run, as you start off in the blocks and use all your effort, I'm going to empower you and show my glory in that. See, I think that's exactly what God is saying here in 2 Peter to you and I. It's just, let's face it, maybe this is you at times. I know it's me at times. Some of us are still left in the starting blocks in our Christian race. And we're looking to God saying, when are you going to give me your power? When are you going to start doing something? And God goes, you've got to be kidding me. That's in the margins. You've got to be kidding me. I've already empowered you. My divine nature is living in you. Now get running. And that's exactly what we're going to do, guys, in this series. But we're going to get running. Because these eight qualities we're going to look at are all about running, and they're all about God empowering us as we do. His divine power, we're partakers of the divine nature, but for this very reason, make every effort and be all the more diligent. You know, this really is a unique series. I, uh, this time last year, I taught a similar series on a different list in the Bible. Does anybody remember what that list was? It was the fruits of the Spirit. And we looked at Galatians 5, 22 and 23 for, for eight weeks, nine weeks, did something similar. And, and actually, I reversed the tables in that series. If you remember in that series, I kept hammering home to you, this ain't about you. This is not your effort, your work, because it's the fruit of the Spirit. So this is God doing His fruit in you. And, and we made that very clear, and we looked at what the fruit is of God's Spirit working in our lives. But this year is a very different series. The Word of God is very rich and full. And this year, it's going to be now more about the effort that you and I need to make, as we're seeing here, to cooperate with God. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, there are certain things we can do to cooperate with God in our personal and spiritual growth. And as we do... I'm telling you, it has the power to change our very lives. And we'll look back and say, he did it, but it was a cooperative effort. You know, we've called this uh, series, um, what do we call it? Fallproof. Fallproof. And uh, I didn't want to call it that. These guys knew I was going to say this. They said, please don't say this because it makes us look bad. But they knew I was going to say this, that, that, that I originally had a different title for this series. But every time I bring a title back for my study break for a particular series or message, the creative arts team, which is like 17 people here, they in unison ding it. They don't like any of my titles. And I get that because I'm a theologian. I'm a Bible teacher. I'm not on the creative arts team. They haven't invited me to be a part of that. And so... <laughs> I came back and I said, we're going to call this series, ready for this, Full Potential. Yeah, and that was the response I got from them because <laughs> I thought that was great because that's what this is about. It's about the full potential that we can have as followers of Jesus. And they said, man, could you get more 1980s or what? And that's when they introduced the Jenga to me. And they said, no, Jamie, really, this series is going to be about how when we cooperate with God, and we see virtue, self-control, godliness, love, and then faith, knowledge, steadfastness, and brotherly affection all working in our lives. God promises that we'll never fall. And you see, that's your take-home point today. Let's do this, and then we're going to be done. We have an elder fund offering we're going to do, but after that we're done. Uh, take-home point is this. The promised results of all of this is truly a fall-proof faith. 
I want you to look with me one last time at the passage before us today here in 2 Peter. And this time I want you to look at what verses 8 and 10 say, because this really is mind-blowing. Again, we read this stuff in our quiet times and think, yeah, yeah, I know that, what's next? But, but let's park in front of this one, because this, this really, I'm not sure you really believe this. Uh, verses 8 and 10, for if these qualities, these eight things, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if you practice these qualities, these eight qualities, you will, say it with me, never fall. Say it again. Never fall. Louder. Never fall. I looked up that phrase, never fall, in the original Greek this week. And you know what it means? Say it with me. Never fall. I'm not sure we believe that. I'm really not sure that we walk around going, man, as I cooperate with God in my sanctification, as I start running the race and trust Him to empower me, there'll be no stopping me. I will never fall. He will see that to that in my life. I just don't think we believe that. I know there's times where I don't believe that. And so God adds more texture to it. He says, well, let me fill in the gaps. You will not be ineffective. That's a fascinating word in the, in the Greek, secular Greek of Jesus' day. This was the word for unemployed. So if you didn't have a job, this is the word that would be used for you because you were ineffective, you weren't producing anything. So it's God's way of saying that if you follow me in these things, you'll be employed for the rest of your life in my service for you, and you'll be effective. It says that we won't be unfruitful. That's an easy one to understand. A tree that bears no fruit, a vine that, or vine that bears no fruit, a tree that bears no leaves, a flower that has no petals, a Christian life, and we all know people like this, that has nothing to show for it. <laughs> but God says that if you apply these eight things, then you're going to have fruit in your life. And again, you're never, ever, ever going to fall. Guys, these are the promised results of you and me acting upon the eight qualities that God wants us to pursue. They are the promised results of what the next two months could be for you and me as we do a deep dive into these things. Don't miss this. They are what God guarantees. I mean, there's very few things God guarantees. There's very few things where he says, if you do this, I promise this. And yet here he does this for us. He says that if you run in this way, then my energy will be in you and there'll be no stopping you. So let's get real honest in the few moments that we have remaining. Here's what we're dealing with, guys. Like you, I have things in my life right now at the age of 53, having been a Christian for over 35 years and a pastor for almost 30 years, and I have a great wife, good kids, a wonderful church, lots of education, hobbies, a retirement I'm working toward. I mean, not soon, but all of these things in my life. And yet, given all of that, here's what you need to know, is that I have things in my life that I desperately need to change. And some of you go like, what? Well, serious things. Flaws that need fixed, dragons that need slayed, sins that need eradicated. Now, I always need to say at this point, because my wife says, man, you get so intense and heavy about this. Yeah, okay, nothing that disqualifies me from being your pastor, so get that out of your mind. Because <laughs> as soon as I say this, you guys are going, what is it, what is it? Now, it's not that. But they are things that desperately bother me, and here's what I know for a fact, they desperately bother God. And, and there are areas in my life that I've been trying to work on for 35 years 
And you would think that by now I am over them, but I'm not. And then I read 2 Peter chapter 1, and here's what you need to know. I begin to get hope that maybe even for your pastor, now is the time. I'm going to take a risk and share with you three of them right now. Again, this is probably as vulnerable as I'm going to get, but some of you love it when I get really honest. A guy said to me this week, I just love it when you get honest. And I was like, well, if, if, if lots of stories of discipleship failure mixed with a thirst for Jesus floats your boat, I got a lot of those. So here you go. <laughs> three things that I'm struggling with right now in my life that I know God wants me to change and they kind of go together. Noni is here, and she's one of our counselors at the church, and she's going to diagnose this and say, well, this all goes together, food, anger, and discouragement. <laughs> and they do go together. Here's how it works. I, I struggle with discouragement. I almost put the word despondency up there. You can look it up. Despondency means a, a lowing of the spirits that zaps your hope and your courage. That's me at times. I, I mean, I know I talk a big game, and I do have confidence and vision in my life, but for years, I've said that at the end of the day, I'm just an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Can any of you relate? <laughs> and the reason I know that is because I can be going strong throughout the day, doing great, and then watch this. One email, just one email, can knock me off my perch. And I'm not proud of that. I feel like an eighth grader when that happens. And, I, and, and, and for years, I've said to her, just don't let that email get to you. It's from a nutcase. Don't let that get to you. And, you know, and I get all defensive, and I do this, and I do that. And then I say, well, don't get defensive. You know, just trust in the Lord and cast your anxiety upon him. And I do all of that. And, and, and I'm in this battle all afternoon, and, and, and I'm still a mess. One email. One critical email uh, that might not have even been rational in nature can just throw me off my perch or one comment or one thought i mean satan is wily and i i can so easily get discouraged in my life and again i'm not proud of that i wish i was more mature because then what happens is that that discouragement quickly leads to anger i'm driving home on the 101 in my mustang five liter and i'm telling you i'm just i'm one you don't want to cross on that that thing and i'm not doing road rage because that would be inappropriate but i'm i'm just seething inside and then i get home and my wife whose antennas are always up going what's the matter with you and i go well you know i had a good day and i got one email you know and i'm, I'm all defensive and all this and and then what do i do i go to the fridge and Kim says to me, hey, honey, we're trying to watch her weight. I fixed two salads. Honey, I ain't having a salad tonight, honey. <laughs> ah, Stouffer's lasagna, family size. That's mine. <laughs> Before you know it, I'm popping that thing in the oven, and I'm just watching that oven for an hour, you know. And I mean, it's pathetic. And I know we laugh at it, but it's pathetic. And I really don't think God's laughing when I'm doing that. Because he's going, man, I mean, there's so much better that I have for you, Jamie. There's so much better that you getting discouraged and then getting angry and then going to food. And you see, here's where the battle really heats up. Because you and I live in a world, now watch this, in which our world, and it's infiltrated a lot of the church, gives us recipes for how to deal with each one of these. You ever notice that? So the world tells me, you got to love this one, to go on a diet and then to chill out and develop a hobby, or if that doesn't work, take an anger management class, <laughs> or in my uh, discouragement that I need to go get therapy or get on some type of medication. And that's what our world would say. And I want to be really clear here right now, because I'm not here to shame any of us. 
I, I want to walk a thin line. Are diets right? Are diets wrong? Yes or no? Of course not. I, I, I have more books on diets than, than I probably do on theology. I mean, I have Nathan Pritikin uh, going way back, and then I, I got the cardio diets, the South Beach diet, the Atkins diet. I, I'm a card-carrying member of Weight Watchers. I mean, I've done it all. And, and, and so diets are not bad. Are, are hobbies good or bad? Of course hobbies are good things to do, and I'm sure even anger management class, which nobody's had me take yet, I'm sure those are helpful too. And again, I've been in therapy, and I think therapy is very, very helpful. I encourage that. And I, I'm not on meds and have not been, but I have friends that have utilized psychotropic medications when things get really rough, and I, and I, and I think that's very legitimate. And so the world's recipes, I don't want you to hear me saying, I'm not saying they're bad. It's just that at the end of the day, the Bible and theologians of old have a phrase for these things. They call this flesh management flesh management the word flesh simply means the organic part of you your body even your feelings and your thoughts because that's more organic in nature you know and, and what we do is we try to take that very part of our soul and we try hard to manage it with the tools of the world and again it's not bad it's just here's what we need to understand today is that at best it's hit or miss and it's also somewhat limiting i think that's what god's really saying to us that at the end of the day, what Second Peter is saying, now visualize this, is do you long for more? Do you long to go for what the theologians of old called the deeper things of God and maybe allow those deeper things to deal with some of these presenting problems <laughs> that you and I have? You're saying, what are those deeper things? That's what this series is going to be about. See, here's what I'm curious as I'm in the battle right now. I'll use my own life as an example here. Um, I, I struggle with food. Uh, the world says take, go on a diet, and I've tried that on and off, and I, I can lose weight, but then I gain it back. Uh, the Bible is going to use this word over the next two months in my life, and we're going to spend an entire week on it. Self-control. And, and even if somebody's been a Christian now for 35 years and a pastor for 30 I have a renewed interest right now in my life as to what exactly God means by self-control. And how, Lord, does that work? And what does it mean for me to make every effort towards self-control? And what's involved in that? Because, Lord, that just might help me when I'm angry and discouraged and want to eat. Do, do you see how that might work? And maybe that'll take me deeper than a diet could. Or how about with anger? You know, in this series, uh, what did I write down for anger here? We're going to be looking at, yeah, oh my gosh, this one will rock your world. But we're going to be looking at two topics in this series, the pinnacle of it all, love, and then before that, godliness. And, and again, I'm not answering any questions here right now. I'm simply posing questions to my own soul as I did this week. I thought, I wonder what experiencing true love. The Bible says that pure love casts out all fear. God's love casts out all fear. And I know when I'm angry, I'm very fearful and frustrated. And I wonder, what would happen if I went deeper with God's love in my life? I wonder what that might do when it comes to the anger that I have. And how about godliness? Godliness is learning to live right and act right. And I wonder what a deeper understanding of that might do with the anger in my life. And then I think of discouragement. That's a huge one. And there's two things that the Bible is going to put before us in this series. The first one is brotherly affection, and then the other one is what we're simply going to call steadfastness. 
And again, I wonder to myself that when I get discouraged, what would happen if I engaged in true fellowship with those around me? Because I usually don't talk about it. I'm a typical man. I usually don't talk about my discouragement with those around me because I feel like a whiner. And I feel like an EGR. Do you know what an EGR is? An extra grace required person. And I don't want to be an EGR. And so I, I don't usually go to people. But what if I called Ed when I got one of those emails and said, I don't mean to whine, but talk me off the fence. But what if I applied steadfastness to that? In other words, did that a lot in my life? I, I wonder what that might do in the things that I am battling. And, and then as I wonder all these things about my life, Here's what happens. I then think about you. And I wonder what things make your list. Daryl was here last night. I'm not going to read his list, but I was deeply touched. He sent me an email. Daryl's our uh, pastor emeritus. And uh, he said, boy, I was really moved by your sermon. And I said, thank you. And he said, here's my list. And he shared with me three of the things that he's battling right now. And you see, here's something I know about you. If you and I were having a cup of coffee today, and I said, tell me your list. Here's what I do know about you. You have one. <laughs> we all do. I don't care if you've been a Christian for five days, five months, five years, or 50 years. you got a list. Because you're not perfect. And you're fallen. And you're in the battle, hopefully, with me. And I'd be curious as to what your list is. Maybe for some of you it's lust or pornography. Maybe for others of you it's lying. You just can't seem to come clean. Maybe it's out-of-control spending. You just have debt upon debt upon debt. Maybe it's intimacy issues. Your spouse says you just can't seem to draw close. Your kids are distant from you, and intimacy just terrifies you. Maybe it's anxiety or worry that constantly grips you. Maybe it's jealousy, gossip, pride, laziness, cynicism, family of origin pain, or maybe even a past mistake or sin that you've tried so hard to get over and forgive yourself for and you just can't seem to. I wonder what makes your list. Because again, looking at this here, because this is really important, the layers here, our world would have a recipe, I promise you, for anything on your list. I, I, I mean, and, we, and again, I want to be clear, these recipes are not necessarily bad or wrong, it's just that I don't think they're deep enough. And our church utilizes many of these recipes. So go to a class to get control of your spending. Get some counseling for your intimacy issues. Take some medication for your anxiety. Find an accountability partner for your lust. Fallen human beings made in the image of God never tire for coming up with strategies to manage the flesh. And again, they're not wholesale wrong, and sometimes they will work and sometimes they won't. But I would argue they're not deep enough. And I guess my only goal in today's talk with you guys is to try to help you develop a thirst to go deeper. Simply a thirst to ask yourself, what might God do if I made every effort, if I was more diligent, if I supplemented things to my faith, and I added these things richly to my life. See, here's what God promises, and it still blows me away. He says he can keep us from falling. <laughs> he says that he can keep me from being thrown by just one email. He says he can give me a peaceful ride home. <laughs> he says that he can keep me away from that evil refrigerator and stofers that has no redeeming value in my life. <laughs> God says that he can do that, but he says do it my way. 
And guys, I for one want to know more about that. And I can't see what God might do in my life over the next eight weeks. And I can't wait to see what he might do in yours. Let's cooperate with him. We'll be glad that we did. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for your goodness that you've shown us in Christ. We've been celebrating that, Lord, for over the past hour. And we're grateful that we can gather freely as the church here and at other campuses and venues to do so. And God, as we've had this candid but hopefully intimate talk about the things that you want to do in our lives declared in your holy word, God, I pray for each one of us here, for each one at our campuses and venues, for each person listening online, that God, you would cause our hearts and minds to want to cooperate with you. And that God, as we do that, as we engage our faith, as we add these things to our lives, that God, you would empower them by your Holy Spirit. And may we run the race well. And God, I pray as I so often do that you would also answer Lewis's prayer, that you'd surprise us with joy in the process. And Lord, not just help us deal effectively with the things that plague us, but draw us to yourself. And in you, may we find joy. Lord, do something in our lives, we pray. And we look forward to what you're going to do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And the whole church says together, amen.